Turn now for our scripture reading to the book of 2 Samuel and the chapter 6. The book of 2 Samuel and the 6th chapter, as we continue to make our way through this book of 2 Samuel, we arrive now in the 6th chapter this Lord's Day morning, and we pray for the Lord's help and blessing as we read his word together. This is the word of the Lord, come let us hear. His holy word together. The Lord help us and give us understanding and application to his word. Again David gathered together all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people that were with him from Bali of Judah to bring up from thence the ark of God whose name is called by the name of the Lord of hosts that dwelleth between the cherubims. And they set the ark of God upon a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab that was in Gibeah. And Uzzah and Aho, the sons of Abinadab, drave the new cart. And they brought it out of the house of Abinadab which was at Gibeah, accompanying the ark of God. And Ahab went before the ark, and David and all the house of Israel played before the Lord on all manner of instruments made of fir, wood, even on harps and on psalteries and on timbrels and on cornets and on cymbals. When they came to Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah put forth his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen shook it. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God smote him there for his error. And there he died by the ark of God. David was displeased because the Lord had made a breach upon Uzzah, and he called the name of the place Perez Uzziah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How shall the ark of the Lord come to me? So David would not remove the ark of the Lord unto him into the city of David, but David carried it aside into the house of Obededim, the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord continued in the house of Obededim, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obededim, and all his household. And it was told King David, saying, The Lord hath blessed the house of Obededim, and all that pertaineth unto him, because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obededim into the city of David with gladness. And it was so, when they had bare the ark of the Lord, had gone six Paces. He sacrificed oxen and fatlings, and David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was girded with a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the trumpet. And as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, 
Michal, Saul's daughter, looked through a window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And they brought the ark, and they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in his place in the midst of the tabernacle that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And as soon as David had made an end of offering burnt offerings and peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. And he dealt among the people, even among the whole multitude of Israel, as well as the women and as men, to everyone a cake of bread and a good piece of flesh and a flagon of wine. So all the people departed every one to his house. Then David returned to bless his household, and Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How glorious was the king of Israel today, who uncovered himself today in the eyes of the handmaids of his servants, as one of the vain fellows shamelessly uncovereth himself. And David said unto Michal, It was before the Lord, which chose me before thy father, and before all his house, to appoint me the ruler over his people of the Lord, over over Israel. Therefore will I play before the Lord, and I will yet be more vile than this, and I will be base in mine own sight, and of thy maidservants which thou hast spoken of, of them shall I be had in honor. Therefore, Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no children unto the day of her death. Amen. So ends the public reading of God's most holy, infallible, inerrant, and sacred word. And may the Lord be pleased to bless that reading for his name's sake and for the glory of his name. Let us pray, let us draw near to God in prayer. Well, dear congregation, I invite you now to please turn your prayerful attention to that chapter that I read to you in your hearing there in Second Samuel and the chapter 6. We arrive in this chapter, having consecutively begun our studies right through the book of First Samuel and uh, seeking the Lord's help now as we arrive in Second Samuel chapter 6. In the last chapter, we recall as we maybe consider the theme there, one of the great themes or the motifs is the kingdom of God advancing in the hearts of the people. We could say the kingdom of God because David is a man after God's own heart. and David is very much Christ-like, isn't he? And we've seen that now finally the people have received David to be the rightful king. He is not the perfect king, but he points us certainly to the king of kings, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one out of uh, David's loins would come, David's greatest son. Now here, David, the rightful king, the man after God's own heart. The people have received him, all the tribes of Israel, 12 tribes. What a contrast to wicked King Saul. They saw a, a very tall man, a very handsome man, a very powerful man, but he was very weak in heart, poor toward God, a man who sought for his own interests, a man who never sought for the cause and the glory of God, unlike David. 
his predecessor Saul. What a contrast to David. Now David is recognized by all of Israel, at least the majority recognize him. Now even the king, remember chapter 5 verse 11, the king of Tyre acknowledges David. And Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees and carpenters and masons, and they built David and house. So David has a home. David has a dwelling place. David overcomes all the Philistines there as well, doesn't he? The Philistines rise up against this new king, and God gives David victory over the Philistines twice. Great victory. But David is not resting on his lees, is he? David wants God to dwell amongst the people. David wants the Ark of the Covenant to be amongst the people. Now what we see in this chapter 6 is the return of the Ark of the Covenant to really the people of Israel. Now it was kept for a good while in the house of Abinadab. Remember, since the days of Eli and his sons. Remember how God came and judged the house of Eli and his sons because of the wickedness, because of the vile things that were taking place in the temple. It was there at Shiloh that judgment came. Now the Ark of the Covenant was constructed nearly 500 years before this event in the wilderness of Sinai. Remember when they came out of Egypt and arrived there at Mount Sinai. And in the Ark were three important things. There was the tablets of stone, which the moral law was written, the Ten Commandments. And also in the ark was placed the manna, some of the manna in a golden censer. And also in the ark was the budding rod of Aaron. And these three things really speak of Christ. Christ is the lawgiver, and he is the only one that has ever kept the law. And he is also, did he not say, I am the manna which has come down from heaven. And just like Aaron's budding rod that was alive, Unlike the other princes of the other tribes, Christ, though he died, is alive forevermore. The other sticks were dead, but Aaron's budding rod, of course, Christ is the one who has life and gives life to men, is alive. Those things speak of Christ, but the ark also was symbolic of God's presence. Remember how we read there in the Old Testament, we'll see in Exodus, if you turn there, Exodus 25, the Lord said to Moses that he himself, Jehovah, would appear between the wings of the cherubim upon that mercy seat. That's where God would meet sinners. And uh, we're told that Christ really is our mercy seat. That mercy seat was to be sprinkled with blood. And it's on on account of shed blood that God meets his people. God cannot meet with sinners apart from shed blood. The scriptures teach without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sins. Exodus 25, 22, And there will I meet with thee, He is speaking about the mercy seat. And as the 
cherubim look down upon that mercy seat. I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubims which are upon the ark of the testimony of all things, which I will give thee in commandment unto the children of Israel. So the ark of the covenant was peculiar in the sense that it represented the very place where God would meet with his people. And from time to time, the Lord did manifest his Shekinah glory there upon the mercy seat, upon the ark. God came down several times, we note in the book of Exodus and also in the book of Numbers and Deuteronomy. And he would meet with his people there. And as I said, following the death of Eli and his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, because of the great wickedness that was taking place in the priesthood and in the temple, defilement, God came in judgment and the ark was taken away, remember, by the Philistines. Ultimately, it was God that took that ark away by the Philistines. But remember when the Philistines captured the ark, you remember what happened. They put it in the temple of Dagon, their god, and Dagon was destroyed. Well, also the people, they were destroyed. Many of them suffered boils and hemorrhoids. Many of them were slain because they took the ark. They couldn't keep the ark because they were an unholy people. And because they had their God, they wouldn't submit to the true, the living God. And despite all of that humiliation, they would not repent. The Philistines did not repent. The ark uh, was symbolical of the very presence of the Lord. In fact, as I said, he manifested his glory and his presence there upon the ark many times. And then remember the Philistines returned the ark after uh, all that destruction had come and they sent it on a cart back to Israel, and they watched the kind, they watched the cattle, remember, take it all the way to the people of Israel. And uh, it's been kept now for the last 50 years in the house of Abinadab, in a place called Kirjath-Jerim. Now, if you turn, you notice here it's called Bala, but the other name of it is Kirjath-Jerim. If you turn to First Chronicles 13, and the verse 5, here it's called Bala, but it's also called Kirjath-Jerim, and that's where Abinadab, one of the Levites, lived. So David gathered all Israel together, First Chronicles 13, verse 5, from Shihor of Egypt, and this, by the way, is the parallel account of what we've read here in Second Samuel 6. So, David gathered all Israel together from Shihor of Egypt even unto the entering of Hemath to bring the ark of God from, you notice the Kirjath Jerim. And David went up and all Israel to Baala. And now notice that is to Kirjath Jerim. So one and the same name. So David removed the ark from Abinadab's home, which had been there for a long time. And we notice that one of the sons, we're told here in the verse uh, 3, was Uzzah. 
And they set the ark of God upon a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab that was in Gibeah, and Uzzah and Ahob, the sons of Abinadab, drave the new cart. So Uzzah was actually one of the sons of Abinadab, whose house had been taking care of this ark. And Abinadab would have been a very old man by now. And hence his sons are leading the procession out to take the ark. You notice the very first thing and one of the first points that we want to make. Of course, David has a zeal for the glory of God. David, we have to remember, has been made king. But David is is not happy at that. David wants to give God the rightful place amongst the people. And this is, this is always the case with a true godly leader. A true godly leader does not want honor to himself, but wants glory and honor to be given to God. And we notice that David, he consults with the tribes. Now, it's not said here in 2 Samuel 6, but if you notice in 1 Chronicles 13, it says there, and David consulted... 1 Chronicles 13, verse 1, with the captains of thousands and hundreds and with every leader. And David said unto all the congregation of Israel, If it seem good unto you, and that it be of the Lord our God, let us send abroad unto our brethren everywhere that are left in all the land of Israel, and with them also the priests and the Levites, which are in the cities and suburbs, that they may gather themselves unto us. So this is going to be a great congregation of all the children of Israel. Verse 3, And let us bring again the ark of our God to us. For we inquired not, as in the days of Saul. And all the congregation said that they would do so. For the thing was right in the eyes of all the people. So David gathered all Israel together from Shihor of Egypt, even unto the entering of Hemath, to bring the ark of God from Kirjath-Jerim. Now, David, as a godly leader, rightly consulted the people. And this is always important, isn't it? In church, the pastor, whoever's leading... It's important that the church work together as a body of Christ, and we know the mind of Christ. The people agreed this was a good thing with the Levites and the priests. And, of course, this was going to be a national event where the whole nation would give the Lord the glory, the honor, as the the king of the people. Remember, it was to Saul that the Lord said, they have not rejected thee, Saul, but they have rejected me as king. God has always been the rightful king over his people. And what David had in mind here was to bring glory to the Lord at this time for all that God had done, for being so faithful to Israel despite their sin, despite their waywardness, how God had been the faithful God Yet again, despite all of their failings, that God would receive the crowning glory 
here in Jerusalem. Remember who was occupying Jerusalem for so long? It was the Jebusites, and it was a fortified city. Since the days of Joshua, it seemed impregnable. But David has, by the power of the Lord, overcome Jerusalem. And now David wants to bring the ark of God into Jerusalem so that God may have the preeminence there. Jerusalem being the the center of worship, the city of David, the city of God. Now, while David consulted the people, he did not consult the word of God as to how to bring the ark. And this was a terrible error on David's part. We read this here. The Levites knew very well. They should have known better. The people should have known better. David should have known better. Not to use a cart. And David here strikingly is doing exactly what the Philistines did. Remember how the Philistines sent the ark. Remember how the Philistine Lord sent the ark back on a cart. But they are doing just as the Philistines did. They should have known better. They should have known the word of God. If you just turn with me to the book of Numbers in the chapter 4, there are at least four things there that should have been done for the ark to be carried away. The first was that the Kohathites, who were Levites, they had to carry the ark. Numbers 4.15 we read, And when Aaron and his sons had made an end of covering the sanctuary and all the vessels of the sanctuary, as the camp is to set forward, that is to, to, to go forward. Remember, in the wilderness, they would have to transport the whole of the tabernacle. And it was the responsibility of the Kohathites to erect, to carry the temple. And we notice here, as the camp is to set forward, Numbers 4.15, the sons of Kohath shall come to bear it, that is to carry it, but they shall not touch any holy thing, lest they die. These things are the burden of the sons of Koath in the tabernacle of the congregation. Now, they were to bear these things with special instruments. The Ark of the Covenant was to be carried by staves, by poles. That's something else they didn't do. And it was to be carried, thirdly, on their shoulders. Notice If you just turn over a few pages to number 7, verse 9. But unto the sons of Koath he gave none, because the service of the sanctuary belonging unto them was that they should bear upon their shoulders. Everything had to be carried upon the shoulders. No carts, nothing like that. They were to bear the things of the Lord upon the shoulders, because these things are holy. They could not touch the ark with their hands. It, the golden staves had to go through, or the staves, the wooden staves would have to go through ringlets upon the ark to carry them in this appointed way. So that's the second. And then, as we read in Numbers 4, verse 6, you may wish to turn there again. I mentioned these special poles or staves and shall put upon them the covering of badges. That's another thing. We'll see 
and shall spread it over with a cloth holy of blue, and shall put in the staves thereof, these poles that went through the ark of the covenant were meant to carry the ark. Hands couldn't touch the ark. Because remember, it represented the very presence of God. But also, as we've just read there in Numbers 4-6, the ark had to be, when it was being transported, had to be covered with badger skins. That's what God had said. And shall put thereon the covering of badgers, Numbers 4-5, skins, and shall spread over it a cloth holy of blue, and shall put in the staves thereof. Now these things were not done. And God is very indignant to the very fact that David, although he consulted the people, and there was a zeal in David's heart for the glory of the Lord, he did not consult the word of God. And there's a lesson here, isn't there? A great lesson. We might feel something is right, but what has God said about it? If you turn to Second Samuel 6 here, we read in the verse 3, instead of the priests bearing the ark, a new cart was set in place, and they set the ark of God upon a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab that was in Gibeah. And Uzzah and Aho, the sons of Abinadab, drave the new cart. Now this was never, never sanctioned by God. In fact, if you just turn back there to 1 Samuel 6, you'll notice there, as I mentioned earlier, this is precisely what the Philistines did. We read there, now therefore make a new cart. This is what the Philistine lords are saying to the Philistines, and take two milk kine on which there had come no yoke, and tie the kine to the cart, and bring their calves home from them. So they're just doing what the Philistines have done. And now maybe this is what they're thinking. This is the last way it was transported. It must be okay. Why not do the same? Well, friends, you you can't do what the heathens do. And just because the transporting of this ark by the kind and the new cart done by the Philistines, God didn't bring judgment. doesn't mean to say he won't bring judgment upon his people, Israel. You see, what we have here is human innovation. And it really came out of the world. Human innovation in the service of God, where God has expressly said that these things should not be done, and given the right manner in way things should be done. So there are two common faults here. The not heeding of what God has said, firstly. This is a common fault in the church even today. How many churches do not heed to what God has said should be done. The neglect of what God has expressly said. And then the introducing of something novel. The introducing of something new. These are two very common faults even today. But I want us to plug this in and make application here this morning. First of all, the disregard for what God has said. Do we not see this here? And then the introduction of man's ideas. So firstly, as we think and try to apply these things here and bring them into the church, we're told by Stephen in Acts 7 verse 38, the church existed in the wilderness. This was he that was in the church in the wilderness. The church has always been, but the church 
God's people like David have made great errors. And God has not changed. He says in Malachi, I am the Lord, I change not. And that ought to come as a warning. God is still zealous for his glory and the honor of his name. And God's word will not be sidelined or jettisoned. We must heed God's word. The first thing is God does teach us. This is all about worship. Of course, David, at the heart of it, wants to worship, wants to glorify God. David has a zeal. But here it seems it's not according to the truth. At least the revealed truth in the word of God. How should God be worshipped? Let me just say, first of all, there are not different styles of worship. You hear people say that today. Oh, well, we we worship God in a different style. My friend, the Bible does not present to us different styles of worship. There is worship that is in spirit and in truth, and there is worship that is rejected. Charismatic worship is wholly rejected because it is irreverent. It is irreverent. Treating Christ as if he is sort of our mate, our pal, our big brother. He is more than our kinsman. He is God who was manifest in the flesh. And here the ark pictures Christ and his presence. And God is to be had in reverence by all them that are about him. Psalm 89 verse 7 We read, God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be had in reverence of all of them, not some of them that are about him, but all of them that are about him, O Lord of hosts, who is a strong Lord like unto thee, all thy faithfulness round about thee. Thou rulest the raging of the sea. When the waves thereof arise, thou stillest them. Do we realize who we come to worship? The one who stilled the waves with his word, Jesus Christ, creator of all things, sustainer of all things, is very God. Who is like to him, creator and sustainer of all things? He who dwells in unapproachable light, who dwells in effulgent light, uncreated light. He says, I am to be worshipped in reverence and godly fear. God is not like unto us. When we gather to worship, we are firstly to do expressly what he has said. We are not to do what we think might please him. Do we understand that? David thought this might please God, but it clearly did not please God. We are not to do what we think might attract the unbeliever. You know, many churches operate on that mode, don't they? Well, worship is to attract unbelievers. No, my friends, worship is for God. And worship primarily is for God's people. That's why of primary importance do we give to ministry to the saints on the Lord's Day morning. When we can give God our best. We're not here, the church does not exist 
to save souls. It is God who saves by the preaching of his word, but the preeminence should be in the preaching that God is pleased, not what we might think might attract the unbeliever. Nothing will attract the unbeliever but God. Only God can attract the unbeliever. Do you understand that? If you, if you understand true biblical theology, only God can turn the heart of the sons of men. The gospel is an offense. The word of God is an offense. So we are not to do what we think might attract the unbeliever, nor should we do anything else but expressly what pleases God. So these are things that we should do. And when we gather, primarily we gather to read his word, to pray his word, to preach his word, because his word is truth. And without truth, we perish. For a lack of knowledge, says the Lord, my people perish. The preacher doesn't begin his sermons by saying, well, I've got some thoughts for you today. I've got some ideas for you. I've been thinking. I've been reading the newspaper. I've got some tips for you. Let's just say a prayer. It really grates my skin when I hear preachers say, let's just say a prayer. My friends, when we pray, we worship God. We bow in his presence. We humble ourselves. When we come to worship God, we come to reverence him. We come to adore him. We really, we come to fear God. And it's a holy fear. It's a filial fear. Paul says to the Hebrews, in Hebrews 12, 28, Wherefore we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace. Why? Whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. That's what we're to have. Reverence and godly fear. We've come to fear the Lord. The fear of the Lord is clean says the psalmist, enduring forever. Something else we do, we come to sing psalms and hymns. That's, that's what the Scriptures teach, Colossians three sixteen, that the word of Christ dwelling you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. It's all to the Lord, isn't it? pleasing and entertaining ourselves. We've not come to make ourselves feel good. You know, some people say, I come to church to feel good. My friend, we come to church to worship God. And if we truly worship God, we will be humbled. And it will be a blessing. But we must get this right. We come primarily to give God the glory that's due to his name. And in that, we will find our chief delight. As we worship God in spirit and in truth, we are to sing psalms. Sadly, so many churches don't sing psalms, but it's, it's a command in the word of God. We read here how God had commanded that the ark be carried in a certain way. And God has expressly said that we are to sing psalms. Chronicles 16, 1 Chronicles 16, verse 8. Give thanks unto the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the people, sing unto him, 
sing psalms unto him. That's a command. We're told that in the New Testament as well. We read it in Colossians 3 verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly with all wisdom. And then we read singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Now there's some debate amongst Christians of some of the psalms, hymns, and some spiritual songs. That's not the place for this this morning. But we sing psalms. We must sing psalms. Dare we neglect the psalms. And if we think the hymns to be hymns and spiritual songs, we must sing them. And we mustn't sing something we, we disagree with. When we sing, we must imbibe with the heart. We must engage with the mind the things that we sing. For the Lord knows the heart. Whether we mean these things, whether these are just mere utterances coming from our lips or things from the heart. Now sadly, many churches do not sing psalms. They think it's some sort of an odd thing that God required of the, in the Old Testament, but my friends, we read of it in the New Testament. God has never abrogated these things. We must furthermore um, read through the Scriptures. It, it's all part of our worship, isn't it? If you just turn there to Nehemiah 8.4, we read some neglect so much that the reading of God's Word and the preaching of God's Word. And we need to be very careful where God has commanded something that we don't negate that what He has commanded. And especially here, the reading of the Word, Nehemiah 8.4, we read here, in the days of Nehemiah, when the temple was being, and the, and the wall was being restored, Ezra, the scribe, we read, stood upon a pulpit of wood. There was a pulpit set up. And we come down and we read, and the elders and the scribes, verse 7, what did they do? So they read, verse 8, in the book of the law of God distinctly and gave the sense. That is the meaning, the application, and cause them to understand the reading. But how often it is that preaching today is curtailed in churches. People want sermonettes. As I say, sermonettes breed Christianettes, little Christians, little of the word. We're not going to grow, we're not going to increase. How is it that so many can sit in front of a television and listen to David Attenborough with all of his blasphemies on the BBC, the British Blasphemy Corporation, I call it, listening to his utter nonsense for over an hour, but they can't listen to an hour of preaching? I don't understand. I think there's something sick, there's something wrong when this is the case, isn't it? When we have more of an appetite, for the things of the world and for nonsense, than rather what God has to say. People will sit and listen, even on the Lord's Day, to songs of praise for goodness knows how long. But can't be in the house of God. It's not right. It seems such a contradiction. The truth is they don't want to hear God's Word. That's often the case, isn't it? People don't really want to hear God's Word. And hearing God's Word is worship. 
So many people switch off in the preaching of God's Word. I, I, mean, I, I think, those of you who have a television, I don't imagine you to have your eyes shut. As maybe you have now your eyes closed. The preaching of God's Word. It's not right, is it? It's dishonoring to God and He sees. But how so, so many churches are... Uh, Neglecting what God has said, and then they introduce something foreign. Drama, a skit, a choir, a music show. This is commonplace today. And there are three common errors, really. People do these things because it looks good, it feels good, and it attracts people. Well, pastor, look what they're doing down the road. They seem to be getting a whole lot of people in there. And so they carry on and they, they imbibe these things. It's the same here with the new cart. Well, the Philistines did it and they seemed to get away with it. Maybe that was the thinking of some of the people or maybe they just didn't think. That's what they did. We'll do it. That was the last way it was transported. We'll do it now. No consultation of God's written word. But God says, this is what I require. The word has not changed. Now, so many ministers today cave into the pressure of young people. And uh, it's not the case, is it? God doesn't change. He is the same, and what he requires is still the same. Some say, well, that church seems to be prosperous. (laughs) I don't care. It'll soon be exposed that they're prospering in exactly the wrong way. And many of their so-called conversions will prove to be sham conversions, not of the Lord. We've got to be very careful that we are, that God is doing the attracting. We don't attract people. God alone changes the heart, the will, the mind, the affections. You cannot do it. I cannot do it. We don't introduce pragmatic things. I'm not saying for one instance that the church should ever be dull Friends, when we come to the truth, it's never dull, is it? It's never boring. It cuts to the heart. Exodus 23, 32, Thou shalt not follow a multitude to evil. People said this seemed right. David consulted them, but the Lord wasn't consulted. Very soon we notice here, verse 6, The oxen stumble, Isaiah puts forth his hand to steady the ark, and he's smitten by the Lord, and God smote him there for his error, it says, verse 7, and there he died by the ark of God. Suddenly, and you think about it, here was a young man, now we don't know how old he is, but he grew up with the ark in his own home, over familiarity. And there are people who can grow up in the church and you are over-familiar with the Word of God and you treat it lightly. Familiarity breeds contempt. Be careful. Now we may ask why such severe judgment here. Firstly, it was a disregard for what God had said. Notice, Not only should Isaiah have known better, not only should his father have known better, but all of Israel. But the man who did it was smitten. 
And secondly, there was no fear of the holiness of God. You see, we must fear God because He is holy. There is one thing we should fear. That is God and our sin against God. While God is what we call ubiquitous, God is everywhere. God is omnipresent. The ark represented the peculiar sense of his presence and his glory. And Uzziah should have known that. It was there in the word of God. But he didn't heat. This was that sacred chest. And the church, my friends, is... Let me say this. Where we meet here now, where two or three are gathered, the Lord says, I'm there. And when you walk in to the door, the Lord has said, where two or three are gathered there, in my name I am present. How do you treat the assembly of the saints? The psalmist tells us God is to be had in reverence. Think of it there in Matthew 18. Those words are given in verse 15 to 17 in light of church discipline, where he says, Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he shall neglect to hear him, tell it to the, unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as an heathen man. And the publican, in other words, he's out. In Israel, you were outside of the camp of Israel if you were uncircumcised physically. The person that behaves in such a manner that will not hear the church, we must treat as an uncircumcised in heart. And they cannot be part of the church of Christ. The person that does not hear what the church has to say cannot be considered a believer. It doesn't matter what they've done. It doesn't matter how small. If they treat lightly Christ's body, friends, he says, in light of that, verily I say unto you, whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. It is sacred and binding what the church resolves on. Whatever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say unto you that if two or three shall gather on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I there in the midst of them. How do we treat the church of Jesus Christ? You know, it's all very well talking about the ark. But Christ, as we thought in the prayer meeting, walks in the midst of his lampstand. How much honor do we give to Jesus Christ? Are we careful to be here on time? Are we careful to maintain a holy walk with the Lord and with one another? This is where the Lord is pleased to meet and where sin is entertained and when false doctrine is entertained, God cannot be there. Men have to depart or God has to depart. Right? Always the way. We know from Psalm 99 verse 1, how the Lord said he, he dwelled, how he reigned amidst 
the cherubims. The Lord reigneth, let the people tremble. He sitteth between the cherubims. And Christ sits in his church. And there must be godly fear amongst his people. And there must be a reverence and a desire to do his will expressly. Not what people say, what people think, what pastors think. I could care less what pastors think and what church officers think if it does not accord to the word of God, friends. If they do not speak the truth, there's no light in them. The church does not make up its own rules. But Christ is the head of the church and Lord of all. When we come to worship, it is in God's appointed way. Aaron's sons soon realized that. Remember how they were consumed with fire. They thought they could just worship how they wanted. But a fire came out and consumed them. Think of Ananias and Sapphira. We're told that they lied to the Holy Spirit. That was in the church, the New Testament. We are told they lied to the Holy Spirit. Did they pray a prayer to the Holy Spirit? No. They lied to the church. And how is it that they lied to the Holy Spirit? Well, every believer is indwelt with the Holy Spirit of Christ. And in that sense, they lied to the Holy Spirit. They made out to believers that they did something that they didn't do. But they gave all their money. You see, sin is not treated lightly in the church of Jesus Christ. What did God do? Peter said to them, death is at the door. And they, they persisted in their sin. Isaiah knew this was a breach of a positive commandment. The Lord had said in Numbers 4.15, and when Aaron and his sons made an end of the covering of the sanctuary and all the vessels of the sanctuaries, the camp is to set forward that after that the sons of Kohath shall come to bear it, but they shall not touch anything lest they die. This was a breach of a positive commandment. You see, ultimately there was no respect for God's word. And sadly today that is true in so many a place. No respect to God's Word. Now we have a church articles of faith which are based on the Word of God. And we are binding to God's Word. What God's Word says, we must do. Uzzah, he wanted to prevent something that he thought might happen. He went to study the ark. But that is actually an insult to God. As if God's ark needs a steadying. Do you see this? The ark never needed protecting. But the warning in Scripture was always men needed protecting from the ark. Because God is holy. Because God is a consuming fire. God, my friends, is his own defender. You see that? Look at what happened to the ark. It went amongst the Philistines. Did, did God need a defender? No. Destroyed the Philistines. 
And you see, to whom much light is given, much will be required. The Philistines were struck with boils and hemorrhoids. But when the children of Israel touch the ark, it's death. To whom much light is given, much will be required. Friends, the great danger is offending God. God doesn't need us to prop him up. We don't need to prop up the ark. We don't need to prop up the gospel by adding things to it and somehow trying to make it more palatable and attractive. There's a danger. That's the danger. As you take away what is God's and you put it in the hands of men and it's ruined. Well, you will be ruined, should I say. Uzziah was sincere, but he was sincerely wrong, wasn't he? Absolutely wrong. He put his hand forth in an unholy way. And men do this when they preach the word of God and they add to it. They're saying, God needs a hand in saving sin. My friends, only God can save sinners. Only God can give the new heart to receive the truth. Only God can. God does not need a hand. Salvation is entirely of God. It is God who raises sinners from the dead. Hear me, from the dead. People who are spiritually dead. You just keep preaching the word and he he raises sinners to life. You see, it dishonors God. When we try to help him. We are commanded to do only two things, to preach and to pray. The rest is up to God, isn't it? Preach. Timothy, preach the word. Preach it. We don't offer Christ. We preach him. We don't offer you the gospel. We, we give the gospel. And those who are made alive will receive it. They will be brought to conviction of sin and newness of life. And they will be troubled. You see, God is holy. Without Christ who lived and died for his people. And makes them alive. They will never live. We don't preach a social gospel. We don't preach a God who needs our help. You know, you hear in some places, you know, you're God's hands. You're his feet. You're his lips. No, you're not. We are his vessels. But his vessels must be used in his appointed way. Yes, we are in that sense. His spokesmen. His preachers. But friends, we invalidate our ministry when we introduce things that he has not said. It says here, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzziah, and God smote him. And we read here, and David was displeased because the Lord had made a breach upon Uzziah. Now the Hebrew word here does not mean that God was angered against God in such a way, but it says, and David was displeased. The word here means he was grieved. That's the, the meaning of the Hebrew. He was, he was grieved in his heart because he, he knew something was wrong. There was this breach that God had made. 
And therefore this place is named in such a way. But we see David's godly fear and seeking the Lord in verses 9 to 10. And David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How shall the ark of the Lord come to me? So David would not remove the ark unto him into the city of David. But David carried it aside into the house of Obedidim the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord continued in the house of Obedidim the Gittite three months, and the Lord blessed Obedidim and all his household. Now David, here he has a right understanding. He still wants the Lord to come amidst the people. He has a desire for the Lord, this Ark of the Covenant, and the the Ark of the Lord goes into this Levite's house. We know he was a Levite. 1 Chronicles 15, 6 tells us his name, Obedidim, there is listed at least three times. But David, he learns something very important from this simple Levite. Reverence with the Lord. Zeal is important, isn't it? David had a love for the Lord, but he had to learn reverence. And where there is true worship, there is both. There is love, there is reverence, there is respect, there is godly fear. And you see, the Lord was pleased here to dwell in this abode of this man, Obedidim, for these months. This man had made a home for the Lord, as it were, so to speak, for the ark in this dwelling abode because he knew all that he has was the Lord's. All Obedidim has and is the Lord's. And it's true for us as Christians. God can live and abide with us. He made a space for the ark. And it's true for us if we are the Lord's. We, you know, we, we don't put God in the garage, do we? As it were, of our life. We don't add him to our lives. He doesn't become an appendage but he becomes our life. No doubt, Abinadab, the man before, gave a special place and appointed his his first son, remember, to look after the ark. The first son held that place and position of prominence in the family. He gave his firstling, as it were. And so here David learns a lesson. The Lord can and will dwell with his people who will humble themselves. Thank God he does. He does dwell with his people. And we read here how Obedidim's house was blessed and and the word went round and everybody heard it. The Lord, we don't know in what way, but he blessed Obedidim, we're told here. It was such a blessing for him. And David wanted this for the people. David wanted this for all of God's people. And friends, this is true for every minister who truly has a heart for the Lord and for his people. He wants all of God's people to be blessed in the Lord. But let me say this. He has to take preeminence. And we have to heed what he said. David has a right kind of zeal now. Fear for the Lord. Holiness for the Lord. And you see, let me say this, the holiness of God did not drive David away from God, but drove David to God. And and that is true for every believer, every true child of God. It's like the ocean, you know, we, 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 we look at the vast sea out there, 
And we see that the, the, the sea is a great abyss, the unknown, the power and the majesty of the sea. What does it do? We, it draws us to the sea. We look at it and we, we say, my, isn't the sea a mighty thing? It's powerful. We respect it. But in a far higher way, the holiness of God, the awesomeness of God, it doesn't drive us away from him, but it drives us to him. And we respect him. We hold him in awe and wonder. And this is only right, isn't it? This is only right for the believer to, to hold his God in wonder, in awe. The very one who is God became our kinsman, the Lord Jesus Christ. The very things in the ark represent Christ. The law. He came and lived under the law. The budding rod. The manna. I am the manna which came down from heaven. You see, because of that, because of all that Christ is for us, and all that he has become for us, our righteousness before God, our wisdom, our life, we give Christ the preeminence. We don't treat him as a second thought. We don't treat worship as a second thought. Church as a last-minute thing. But we hold him in great reverence and awe in our lives. Yes. Desire should have known all of this. God is a consuming fire, but God can dwell among his people. And David rejoiced in this. Now time has run out. We'll come and consider the remaining verses next week of this chapter. There's a beautiful balance that I want us to perceive from the word of God. David rightfully requests the ark to be taken to all of the people in Jerusalem. We'll see it in verse 12b right to the end. And we'll see a right spirit. We'll see a wrong spirit. And you notice as I close, very carefully, it says in verse 13, I'll read from verse 12b, So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obededom into the city of David with gladness. And it was so, now notice, that when they that bear the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, he sacrificed oxen and fatlings. That's a remarkable verse, isn't it? Look at it. They bear the ark, that is, they carried it upon their shoulders. Here is the right way. And the men only take six paces, six steps, and David says... Let us sacrifice to the Lord now. Why? Because God could have consumed David and the people a long time ago. But God bear with them, didn't he? A sacrifice was given, or sacrifices, because of the Lord's goodness. And my friends, it is on account of the mercy of God the Son that we are not consumed. But God spared not his only begotten Son, but delivered him up for us all. Why? That he may dwell 
in the tabernacles of our hearts and in heaven with him forever one day. Thank God for the mercy and the sacrifice of his dear son, the Lord Jesus Christ. David had great joy. And we'll consider these things next week. This public national procession. May God receive the preeminence in our lives and for the glory of his name. Amen.